the Askell Leadership Podcast. Hello, my name is Rob Robson and welcome to another episode of the Trust Askell Podcast. For this edition, I'm joined by Nick Martin, who is the principal of a large secondary school in a trust. I'll let him introduce himself further in a minute. As you'll also hear later, Nick has been carrying out a little bit of research, which I think could initially be described as something which he set out to do to benefit his own leadership development. But when he described what he was doing, I thought it'd be really interesting to learn more about it and for you to hear about it as well. So what has Nick been doing? He's been learning about system leadership by talking to a number of leaders in different professions to see what he can learn both about lessons about leadership and management practices that can be transferred between professions, but also those that are, to use a current piece of jargon, domain specific and sit firmly inside the various professions and cannot be transferred. This podcast was the first opportunity that Nick has had to develop his thinking. And whilst we mainly stick to the topic of his research, there are a few times when both he and I are clearly thinking out loud but I hope you still find these musings interesting. Welcome, Nick. Let's start, as always, with you introducing yourself. Thank you, Rob. Uh, my name is Nick Martin, and I am the principal of Samuel Whitbread Academy, which is a, a large rural upper school, got about 1,700 students, about 100 teachers, 100 support staff. And uh, we're also in a multi-academy trust of uh, 10 schools, which includes nurseries, lower schools, primary schools, middle schools, secondary schools, and upper schools. So we've got the whole gambit. You've had a, an unusual route to headship. You haven't been classroom through to senior leadership. You've done some other stuff as well, haven't you? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, so um, I started in a school in Milton Keynes, Stanbury Campus, which is another big school, teaching yeah. maths. Uh, yeah, two and a half thousand. Uh, moved there to a school in Leighton Buzzard called Van Dyke, uh, where I became second in maths. And at that point, I joined the National Strategist. So that's where I sort of went out of uh, education um, and became one of the numeracy consultants. And that led to me working for the National College on a programme which was looking at getting schools to work together in networks, which is a lot of where the ideas for trusts came from. Um, and from there, I worked for the LA again as a school improvement advisor. And then I had a fantastic um, line manager at that point in the local authority who could see that I was you know, moving back towards schools and placed me in a school that was in special measures for a couple of days a week as an assistant head. And that was life changing for me, um, for him to have that you know, foresight. And so from there, I worked as assistant head part time, still local authority advisor. And then I got a deputy headship um, at a school called Harlington, which is in Harlington. Um, and then from then, I moved over to work in Sammy Whitbread, initially as a vice principal, um, and then um, as the principal. So, I mean, I know from conversations with you in the past that you have had a, a real interest in system leadership and an interest, too, in leadership in other areas apart from education and what we might be able to learn from that. And I know you've been doing a little bit of work on that recently. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about what made you come up with the idea of looking at leadership outside education? Yeah, so one of the things 
may probably because I've worked outside of industry, uh, outside of um, uh, education on a case um, for periods of time. So I saw a tweet, I think it was about two years ago, about this um, head teacher who, rather than spending um, time going to see other schools, because um, sometimes we can be a bit uh, insular, he actually spent a day working for a Michelin star chef. And I sort of put that at the back of my mind for, you know, for, like I say, two years. And then this summer, because of COVID and we were sort of not really going on holiday or not really doing anything, one of the things we did as a family was to go to a, a local restaurant, which is quite well known and it's got a Michelin star chef in it. And uh, so it sprang from there. So I, I asked the chef if I could interview him. I put some questions together and it was a really interesting interview. And from then I sort of thought, well, I wonder how that contrasts with other professions. So one of our, the governor that got a connection with the armed forces, through my family, there was a connection to IBM and the civil service. And then someone at school knew a police officer and somebody else at school knew a solicitor. And then one of my SLT's um, brother-in-law's a doctor. And then my dad knew an architect. And you know, before I knew it, over the summer, I had a nice batch of about seven interviews that enabled me to look across these professions and try to pull some um, lines together. Great. Okay. So you carried out these different interviews with with people from outside education. Do you want to just take us through the various different things that you asked and, and therefore what you found out? I think you started with something about high standards, didn't you? Yeah. So because the first person I started with was the chef, and the Michelin star chef. So one of the things I was interested in is how do you maintain those high standards every single day? And um, because obviously with a Michelin star restaurant, you've really got to deliver, you know, that that really high level of service every day. So he said they have what they call the Bible, um, which is basically the recipe to the gram. And he was saying how some recipes are literally 135 grams of flour you know and if you deviate to 140 or 130 i suppose um then you know the recipe will be different and you are reprimanded if you deviate from this recipe because they've all been worked out to perfection and then so i started asking the other professions the similar type question about how do you get those high standards so um in the army the next question and that was really interesting because it was the army officer he was saying loads of training you know train 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 because when we go into a combat situation um, we don't want to make any mistakes but up until that point you can make mistakes um, on on the training exercises because that's where you explore other ideas but he also talked about history and tradition that that, that the armed forces have got this you know, hundreds of years of tradition to to fall back on so there's there's an expectation and there's a standard that you have to live up to and there's an expectation of the way that officers uh, portray themselves because you've got that history behind you and then other professions like IBM civil service they have these uh, daily meetings or team meetings where they're constantly catching up talking to each other how you know on what they're doing in terms of their work patterns to ensure that you get these high standards the civil service was interesting he talked about you've got to have the same mission, you've got to have the same vision, you've got to have the same objectives, and they're driven by their strategy and their um, action plans. 
with the solicitor was different again. So with solicitor as a junior solicitor, your work is checked religiously. And that sort of struck a chord with some of the other professions as well, where, where you cannot make a mistake, like the chef, like the solicitor, um, like the, the doctor, um, like the architect as well. Early on in your career, your work is checked every single day. With the solicitor, she basically said that none of that junior solicitor's work is going out unless it's checked because some of those, um, she said, for example, if you make a mistake for a company lawsuit where you know junior solicitors made an error, it could cost millions and therefore every bit of their work is checked. And I was sort of reflecting on that as a trainee teacher. We had that NQT year, we had that training year, but then we are pretty much <laughs> thrown in, then aren't we, into a sort of lesson type um, situation. And we don't have that um, such high level of monitoring, I suppose. But it was different across the different professions. Just thinking about, you were thinking about sort of junior members of staff there and, and how, as you say, you know, in, in many schools there, fairly much left to get on with it after the first or even second year. I mean, obviously, that will change under the new uh, early careers framework. What about uh, innovation then? So if... Yeah, so, so that sort of led on from, the, from that first question was, in these type of environments, and how do you innovate? And I was interested with the chef, because if you're following a recipe to the gram, where do you innovate? So with the chef, he said they have what they call um, the chef's table, which is where each week, sort of lunchtime, one of the chefs, maybe like a junior chef, they will they will cook for the rest of the staff. And that's where they have their innovation. That's where they have their, their you know, bit of a play with um, the different recipes. And the ultimate accolade is for your dish to then make it onto the menu. But before it makes it to the menu, it will have been tested and it would have been improved and it would have been um, you know, refined. But that's where they do their their innovation. Um, with the army, as I said earlier, you can innovate during training and you can innovate during the, um, the simulations and the you know where you on on manoeuvres. But when you're in combat, that's that's where you're supposed to be following you know the the, the set protocols and the set procedures that you've trained for. Whereas with IBM there was almost like a, an atmosphere where you're encouraged to innovate all the time and you're encouraged to come up with different ideas. And then the solicitor, no, you do not <laughs> innovate. Um, there's a whole set of laws that set in place. You can maybe innovate with processes and maybe some of the procedures, but you do not innovate with the law because the law is the law. With a doctor, he was saying more and more as a profession, you do not innovate. There's a set you know, for a particular condition, the NHS will prescribe this is the best drug for that condition at this price. He, he described it almost as ticking boxes or where in this condition, you have to set this drug um, because it's the best one that the NHS has, has got the price for. So some really different things for innovation. And I, I was sort of thinking teaching. I think we've got a more open and a freer um, atmosphere of um, you know, creativity and lots of schools. We've been doing lesson study for a number of years now. We've worked with Cambridge as well. And, you know, there's coaching within education isn't there? and there's action research. I think we have a lot freer type of environment in which to learn than some of these other professions that seemed quite 
prescribed sometimes. That's really interesting, actually. As you're going through all of this, I am thinking about which of these professions we learn from and which which are we more like. And I think it's interesting to reflect on the different conditions that you're talking about as well. As part of that, what happens in these professions when you make a mistake? Because part of innovation is risky, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And that led on from that question, you know, what happens then when you make a mistake? And it was a similar type response from quite a few of them, really. So the chef said, for example, I don't mind if you make a mistake, but you don't make the same mistake twice (laughs) if you're going to work in my kitchen. So this sort of, okay, yeah, we learn, we make mistakes, but not not twice. And, And the army officer was, again, on exercises, on maneuvers, yeah, you can make a mistake, but you're not doing it in combat. Now, the civil servant, this was really interesting. So in the civil servant I spoke to, he, they, he, I don't know if this is across the whole of the civil service, but he definitely operated on these three different types of mistakes. Was a mistake human error? In which case, okay, these things happen, we learn from it. Was a mistake caused by risky behavior? Okay, that's different. In which case, I'm going to give you a coach so that you don't do that again. Or was the mistake caused by reckless behavior? Right, that is disciplinary. And I thought that was really interesting in terms of, you know, say, for example, you've got a teacher who's on a school trip in a minibus and gets a speeding ticket. It could be a human error. It could be risky. It's probably reckless. In which case, following this process that he's got, that would be disciplinary because you have risked potentially the lives of the children in the minibus by um, going over the speed limit. And I thought that was quite an interesting framework to go by. The police, they had more of a a three-strike type thing where, um, you know, you get a coach. There was lots of coaching with mistakes. With the solicitor, she was just saying mistakes cannot happen. They really, you know, have almost zero tolerance for mistakes. And she, so I said, well, how do you get around that then? Because people do make mistakes. And she said, we have an open door policy. As soon as you think you might have made a mistake or you think, you know, so basically not get to the point where it's irreversible. You've got to say before then. So if I've got an open door policy and you choose not to come and see me, then, you know, there's going to be repercussions because I've got an open door policy and I'm asking you to come to me. If, you, if you're ever unsure, you should be asking. And the doctor has said, this is one of the things that's just completely changed throughout his career where you cannot make a mistake now if you're a doctor. It's just the fear of litigation is so much. And he actually went as far to say that that is what has um, curtailed innovation um, because of this fear of making mistakes. Now, there's only one doctor, but he did say, you know, other doctors have said things similar to him. I'm really interested in the civil services definition of mistakes. I think that's really something we could learn from there. It's interesting when someone I know went to work for their very first job, they had a conversation with the the managing director and the managing director said to this person, well, actually, at the moment, we have complete trust between us. But if you ever make a mistake and don't tell us about it, that trust disappears instantly. Yeah. Um, And so you'll go (laughs) from us giving you freedom to be able to work, innovate, through to somebody constantly checking your work. Um, Yeah, and I was struck by how, you know, with a number of the professions, there's this stage of practice. We're practicing for the real thing. You know, in the army, we're practicing 
for combat and you know in some of the other professions the whereas with us we're i think we're more like the sort of chef type thing we're on stage every day aren't we 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 can drive maybe mistakes aren't quite so big things that we're in a lesson um, because you know the next day you can sometimes mend some of those things so maybe mistakes in a lesson situation aren't such life-changing you say like the solicitor makes a mistake um, in a will that could be a massive implication for families and for financially so this thing where you're on stage or you're in combat or you're on the you know delivering that that um, meal that day for several hundreds of pounds whatever it is that's high stakes isn't it and I think that's where they practice, 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 ready to be able to deliver the perfection. So it's almost in two camps, really. It's interesting in the classroom as well, because if you think about the number of interactions, there was that study years and years ago that, that, that looked at how many interactions there are in a classroom, interpersonal reaction, uh, action, sorry, and looking at about 300 per hour, you know, in a full teaching day, 1,500 interpersonal actions, not all of them are going to be perfect. Not, you know, there are exactly. going to be mistakes in those. And it's yeah. what we do with those mistakes and, and how yeah. we learn from them, I think is really interesting, actually. And we're working with young people, aren't we? We're not working with Caesar salad, <laughs> which is pretty much going to stay there, isn't it? But I suppose you will get different ingredients that are going to be different every day and you can have to adapt to that. But as a whole, we're dealing with our clients, if you want to call them that, are different every day, aren't they? Even the same class is different from yeah. Friday afternoon, from Monday morning. And often we're dealing with our clients plus their parents, which is also pretty unusual uh, commercial situation, I would imagine. If we're going to get the next generation of leaders, and of course that's a big question at the moment, how do we develop leaders? What did you learn from the various different people you talked about, about the development of leaders? This again, this was really different from one profession to the other. So in some, like police, army, really clear structures. You know, it's all laid out, you know, exactly what you have to do to get to the next rank. And you quite often you have to take a test. But interestingly, with the army, I think it was, you've got to move. So when you get promoted, you have to move. And we don't really have that in education. No, we don't have to move school. Well, I know some people say it's always good to move to maybe be a deputy head or something like that. But we don't sort of say, right, you're going to be head of department now. You've got to move schools. Um, and some of the professions, that was almost written into the the way that they work. If you're going to be the next rank, you've got to move bases, for example. With some of the other professions, there was lots of shadowing. So to be a leader, the best way that they felt to do it was was to shadow. The That was in the solicitor and in the um, uh, architect, for example. With the chef, he had a really clear structure, which I think he did that himself. A rubric for leadership, and he was using coaching as well. So similar in terms of coaching, shadowing, with this difference of the police and the army, where there was a really clear structure, and they had um, exams to go alongside that as well. I was thinking about the architect that you talked about earlier, and I wonder what leadership looks like in architecture. Yeah, he said you sort of you'll be given a um, project to lead on. So rather than being a sort of a status or a rank or something like that, it would be that you'd be given a bigger and bigger project to lead. That's an interesting difference, isn't it? That I suspect both of those are in schools. We do both things, so we give yeah. people status by 
hierarchy, rank, whatever you want to call it. But we also give potential leaders, we give those people different projects to do as well. Yeah, yes, that is similar, yeah. But I don't think we use shadowing so much, do we? No. Um, We use coaching quite a bit, but we don't tend to get people to shadow people. One of the interesting things, I think, for further study, so for your next study, um, is also whether people carry on doing the job that they were doing while they're leading. You know, there's the old factory floor model, which is very different, where a four person would stop doing the assembly line work that they have been doing and take over a complete responsibility for that. Of course, that doesn't exist in teaching you know, all the way through, even probably to the, the most senior people, they're still uh, teaching as part of their commitment. So, yeah. Yeah, really and that's really interesting, isn't it? Because I still teach, for example, only one class, admittedly. But yeah, the, with many professions, as you go up, you don't do those other tasks, do you? What about attracting people in? So what about, um, you know, I mean, we're, we're obviously getting to a situation now where the, the recruitment market's going to change you know, beyond belief after pandemic but how how do people go out and find the talent that they they need so this was really interesting pretty much everybody was frustrated <laughs> with interviews and no one really had a good thing to say about um you know an interview process and we're talking about some companies that were spending thousands on you know those like uh, personality tests and and role play and um, interviews and and they all had frustrations only one who seemed to cracked it um, was the chef and he said before anybody works for me they basically do a trial period and it sounded quite often that this was for free <laughs> whether that was because he's a michelin star chef people will go and work for him for free for, so sometimes like two weeks maybe even a month they would work for him and at that point then he would then decide whether they got a job or not. Everybody else was pretty much the same, really, that um, they've got real frustrations with interviews and how to recruit. So there was no real nuggets in there apart from the chef. And, of course, we, we wouldn't be able to employ someone for you know a month for free once we decide whether we recruit them or not, would we? But I suppose we do have people on temporary contracts, I suppose, before we give them a full-term um, contract, but for a senior leader, for example, if you were recruiting a deputy head or assistant head, you wouldn't have them for a month before you decided, would you? So the chef was the only one who was doing something different from the others. You said that there was a frustration in the interview process as well. Yeah, very much so. Pretty much everybody to a person said that um, they were frustrated with the interview process or increasingly that you know people came across really well in an interview scenario didn't necessarily then match and what some of the people were saying was they were going very much more now for does this person match our values um, if they match the values of the organization and you can see them fitting in the team that was more important than maybe some of the answers that they were given to some of the interview questions when the people you were speaking to were looking for other people what what type of person were they looking for were they looking for mavericks who would do something different you know bring some new ideas and energy in or were they looking for people that could follow because of the mavericks type thing came up one of the interviews i actually asked all of them about that and they had very very different views on mavericks some of them was like no 
I'm not having a maverick in my, the chef, for example, was like, no. And I did think, well, that chef, he was probably a maverick at one point. So, you know, how does he, how did he become top chef without being a maverick? But in the solicitor, she was like, no. Doctor was, no. Doctor was in the the olden days. You used to have maverick, but not anymore. Um, IBM. Well, so the IBM, they said, she said, yes. Um, in terms of programmers and in terms of some people who work for IBM, they do like Mavericks. The architect went as far to say is that the Mavericks quite often end up owning their own companies. So it seemed to be the common thing was you can be a Maverick when you're in charge. But at the early stages, like police, doctor, law, no, you can't have a Maverick. And again, the civil servant said something really interesting, which was, if you've got, if he said Mavericks are okay, if they've got the same vision and the same values as you, then their Maverickness tends to be around doing things differently. And you think, well, that's interesting. We can learn from that. But if they've got different values to you and different a different vision, then no, they're not going to fit in the organisation. And I, I thought that was that was quite interesting. I've reflected on that in terms of people that I've worked with. There is a difference when someone's a maverick but still got the same values as you. You Then they tend to do things differently, but you still think, oh, yeah, then that can work. But if they're going off in a different direction or their values are different, then you quickly find yourself not being able to work with them. I, I think you're absolutely right, actually. And there's there's something in there as well about mavericks and consistently. You, know, you, you can't be a maverick all of the time. That's just exhausting on everybody. But you can, you've got to know when the right time is. So it has, has a, a school's culture got it built in that it's okay to be a maverick when it's okay to be a maverick? It's a yeah. Difficult thing yeah. to do. So permission. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, permission too. So, you know, if you, if you have a, a senior team where you've re- recruited the entire senior team to do exactly what you tell them to do, then you won't get any mavericks, but you probably won't also get any good ideas either or some ideas that might change practice. Whereas if you have a senior team that you've recruited to challenge and think and really I- extend your own thinking, then you probably will have a couple of mavericks in there but they need yeah, to, to do it. Yeah, and I was thinking about, you know, lesson study, action research. Those are like sort of almost permission to innovate, aren't they? Permission to be a maverick. But you don't want someone being a maverick when the fire bell rings. <laughs> so like you say, you need a sort of areas, area permission to to innovate, that, that disciplined innovation, I suppose, isn't it? Of where, where can we innovate within still a, a framework that knows that we're still delivering the best outcomes for children for example or we're still developing our staff because we've got that the disciplined innovation opposed to being completely off-piste and doing um, whatever you you want to that could jeopardize you know that student's education because you've decided that everyone's gonna eat bananas or something i don't know so yeah so it's got to be evidence-based isn't it yeah evidence and i think i think that's the nice thing about lesson studies it does give a framework and within the framework you have the freedom to be able to try different things, but for a specific purpose. And the action research as well, isn't it? It's got a framework with it and a discipline to it. 
from that then from the idea of of lesson study action research, uh, research etc what did you find out about training people and developing people this was the last question i asked them was about appraisal and professional development they all had appraisal obviously they're doing it quite similar ways to be honest a sort of yearly appraisal and a mid-year appraisal they lots of professions did have this idea that you know the appraisal belongs to that person they drive it you know, it's their responsibility to drive their appraisal. It's not something that's done to them. It's their their appraisal. And I don't know whether we always have that in education sometimes. The chef was very much honest feedback every day, you know, honest feedback on someone's performance. Now, the doctor and the uh, solicitor and the architect and um, IBM as well, I think, to some degree, you have to demonstrate you've clocked up so many hours and if you don't do that for some of these processions, you do not get certified for that next year. And I thought that was really interesting. Law, I think it was, and the doctor, if you don't show that you've done so much training, CPD, you're not going to get certified for the next year. Whereas the police, really clear structure, assessments, training, taking exam, you know, very, very clear. Uh, the civil servant was more shadowing again and coaching again. So there was some difference, but there was a very clear camp of uh, professions where you have to do the certain amount of CPD. It's, it's up to you. You manage it and it's up to you as to what you do it on, but you've got to be able to demonstrate it to external person that you've done the CPD, what you learned from it. And if you don't do that, you do not get certified. And I thought that was really interesting for us as a, as a profession. Yeah, really interesting. And I think that throws a responsibility in, in two directions. One, to make sure that we as a profession have the right CPD that's available. But I think the other point you made is also really interesting, this idea that actually everybody has a responsibility to get themselves trained to the level they need to be in order to do their job properly. So yeah. I, I was looking yeah. at a an appraisal form actually for somebody in a commercial I, I just asked if I could see it and in a commercial environment and and I honestly was quite taken aback by the honesty in the in the feedback so there, yeah. there were some positive things and the overall appraisal was was very positive but there were some specific and very direct things that the person needed to improve and they were they were quite you know they were written in a language that I suspect that if we use that language in a in most school or trust environments would actually cause quite a few problems. Um, yeah, I mean, when I was talking to the chef, he was brutally honest by the sounds of it. But his view was like, how are you going to improve if you're not brutally honest <laughs> about that dish that you just served today? Then you'll yeah. do it again tomorrow. Um, so I, I felt the CPD was probably the area where we could probably learn most. I like lots of the things that we do in teaching in terms of action research, lesser study, you think that's great. But that sort of, you know, real clear honesty and the, the responsibility of the professional to develop themselves and take take ownership, real clear ownership over that, I thought was something that we could definitely learn from as a profession. Yeah, I would agree with you on that as well. And I think hand in hand with that, it's also a responsibility to communicate too. And it goes back to that whole thing about both 
honesty but also responsibility to you know to to yourself as a professional to make sure that you are up to speed on all the communications that you need to be up to speed i remember years ago that um investors and people were really clear about that with me and uh, they was asking me at the time when i was leading to say okay so how do you communicate with staff great and then they asked me the the, the flip question which is how do you know that staff are communicating and are taking responsibility for keeping themselves up to speed and so on. And that, that yeah. actually brought me back a bit at the time. I, I thought, mm, that's interesting. I'm not sure I got a straight answer for that. That's great. Thank you so much. I always ask everybody the, the final question, by the way, as well. Um, so I'm going to ask it to you too. And that leadership is a, in schools at the moment in particular, is a really difficult and sometimes quite stressful job what do you do to as a leader to stop being a leader for a minute and do something different and take leadership off and what is it that you do to de-stress and de-leader yourself well i've been thinking about this question because i guess you you're going to ask it because you asked it to claire when i listened to claire's the the last (laughs) podcast and i'm rubbish at this i have to admit i'm absolutely terrible and with the covid pandemic it's even worse just you know, in terms of switching off, I'm useless. Oh, there's the bell. <laughs> that's one of the things that's come back in because of COVID. We had to reintroduce bells, unfortunately. The only thing I do is I always stop at nine o'clock at night. I don't work after nine o'clock. I don't look any any emails after nine o'clock, and I try not to do anything on Saturday. I've got a dog. And that's quite good because they they don't listen, do they? They don't know that you're supposed to be working um, or shouldn't be working. So taking the dog out is quite good. I've got a 17, uh, an 18-year-old as of uh, yesterday and a 16-year-old son. So they keep me busy driving around and uh, keeping up to date with what they're doing. Um, but I am terrible at it. And I've been thinking about the answer. I was going to try and give you a good answer, Rob, but to be honest, I'm not very good. <laughs> <laughs> well at least it's an honest answer nick yeah uh, yeah well keep focusing on the dog that's yeah, what I'm <laughs> okay thank you so much for joining us today it's you're welcome really interesting and has caused certainly me and i i'm absolutely sure those that listen to the podcast will really think about the different ways that uh, different methods different things that have come out from the various professions that you talk to I'm going to spend a little bit of time really uh, thinking about that. Um, I I like very much, and I know I'm going to keep coming back to it now, is the three types of mistakes from the civil service. That's cool. I'll see if I can find the link for that, actually, and pass it on to you, because he did reference somebody. So see if I can find that and pass it on to you. Well, that'd be great. And if you can, fantastic. We'll we'll put the reference in. And thanks for giving an outlet for this, because I've been sat on it for a while, because thinking I should do something. I was share it with my leadership team but it's it's, it's good that you can share it a bit wider and hopefully some other people can run with it and take it in a different direction as well yeah most definitely many thanks to nick and i hope you found his research and his conclusions as interesting as i did as you heard nick mentions a reference at the end of the podcast and when he sends it to me i'll make sure there's a link on this podcast thank you as always for spending time with us And I hope that you and your loved ones can stay safe and well. Goodbye. The Askell Leadership Podcast.